Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue in our series in 2 Corinthians today, Power in Weakness, with a message entitled, When Christians Mistrust Each Other. So turning your Bible to 2 Corinthians 1, verses 15, to chapter 2, verse 4, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Over the years, I have become convinced that the cause of many quarrels between people is that we mistrust the motives of the other. This is true of nations. When one nation believes the other is lying through diplomatic channels, well, the results are often either a trade war or a cold war with a buildup of weapons or a real or a hot war. Death ensues. Once one side or both sides are no longer believable, there is little room for negotiation. After all, how can one negotiate when one's convinced the other side is not open and honest and has hidden motives? That's how friendships end as well. Marriages, too. One party believes the other is lying, and where do we go from there? And of course, if one party is lying, how do you ever trust a liar? And let's say it's not true. Let's say that the other party has not been lying. And here we have the problem of assumptions. One party assumes he or she understands the secret hidden motives of the other. And once assumptions are made and held, it's very difficult to prove them wrong. After all, one person simply assumes they understand the hidden motives of the other. Now, imagine that happens in church. A dispute arises between two people and even between, you know, a pastor and a congregation. Both sides now assume they understand the inner motives of the other, and there's no way forward until everything falls apart. There is, as we all should know, a legitimate way of judging another and a sinful way of judging another. And we can legitimately judge the behavior of another. Here's a simple test. If someone murders another, don't you think we can judge that behavior? Of course we can. Same is true of adultery and theft and slander and even lying. It's behavior we must judge. But of course, we can provide mercy and forgiveness as well. That's called grace. But there's another behavior that if you judge it, you're always off base. It's to be judging someone's motives. Once we judge the motives of the other, we make assumptions, we make accusations based on those assumptions, and so forth. I don't think you've ever forgiven Harry, says one man to another. But how can he know that? I think you imagine you're superior to everyone else, says a man to his pastor. I think this congregation prefers worldliness to the gospel, says a pastor to his congregation. And in each case, one party assumes they understand and can see what only God can see, the hidden motives of the heart. All that can come from such inappropriate judging is mistrust, broken relationships, continual conflict, open anger. Such judging causes untold emotional pain and suffering. It lashes out only to wound. And that's what had happened in words that had been spoken by some in the congregation at Corinth. They had said things about Paul that assumed they understood the motives of the apostle. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 15 to chapter 2, verse 4, well, it's a marvelous passage of Scripture that teaches us that what happens when people mistrust each other, and also it teaches us how to conquer the spirit of judging the motives of the other. So here's the drama. Paul, after a very raucous relationship with the Corinthian church, made it plain to them that he wanted to spend more time with them. Uh, there was a way through all the difficulties, but then he never showed up, at least not according to the schedule that he had set. 
And that started tongues wagging. Some said he was a people pleaser. He, because he was afraid to tell you different, would say he was going to do something when he was with you, and he never had any attention at all of following through on that. And once those motives had been believed, more rumors followed. You really can't trust Paul, can you? And if you can't trust him to keep his word when he promises something, how are you going to trust him when he preaches the gospel? And so now it becomes a truism. Paul is untrustworthy. And of course, once this kind of a reputation is established, then who should trust Paul at all? And of course, this played into the hands of the false teachers who were targeting the Christian congregation at Corinth. Once Paul is discredited, he becomes ineffective. Game over, he lost. Do you recognize that scenario? How many people have you written off because you started with a false assumption about them? One lie is built upon another, and soon the tower of lies becomes the truth, at least so in your own mind. Paul, in the end of 2 Corinthians 1 and into 2 Corinthians 2, gives us a wonderful approach to cutting through the lies and getting at the truth. He invites the Corinthians into a dialogue with him. The dialogue gets broken down into three units. I mean, first, in verses 15 to 17, Paul very clearly lays out the problem. To this much, everyone should agree. Next, in verses 18 to 22, he ties the accusations made against him with his motives in preaching the gospel. And by now, it should be clear from every other area of Paul's life that he's not a duplicitous man. And then finally, in verse 23 to chapter 2, verse 4, Paul is ready to talk about why it is that he didn't show up even after he had promised to do so. But notice the order. He doesn't begin by protesting his innocence. He ends with that. Before he tells them the real reason he didn't show up, he lays the groundwork. We might learn from his method. But let's begin where Paul does. He didn't show up in Corinth when he said he would, and now the rumors about his character had begun. And so he lays out the situation clearly. I'm reading now 2 Corinthians 1, 15 to 17. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? You know, notice that our section begins with the phrase, because I was sure of this. You know, we're picking up a section that's part of a, a wider discussion. So, so let's remind ourselves what Paul was so sure of, or as other translations say, what he was so confident about. You know, in the last section, Paul had made mention that in spite of the difficulties in his relationship with this church, even so, he boasted in them and they boasted in him. They both understood that this relationship, that is, between the great apostle and the church in Corinth, this was a relationship designed by God in order to bring a great blessing to each other. Because he said, I was so sure about this, that's why I made plans to come and visit you. That, that was my motivation when I made the plans. But then he mentions a second motivation. He says he wanted them to have a second experience of grace. Now, what does he mean when he says, this is what I wanted to accomplish when I visited you? Now, in order to answer that, you know, it has everything to do with, with the plans Paul was making. Initially, he wanted to leave Ephesus, and at first, he was going to travel to northern Greece, or what was then called Macedonia, and after that, he would travel south and go into the city of Corinth. 
Paul mentioned that in 1 Corinthians 16, 5 to 6. So let's read it here. And Paul says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. That was the plan. And furthermore, at that time, Paul had said that when he came, he would take up an offering, and that offering would do two things. First, the Corinthians would help Paul on his journey wherever he would go. And then second, he would also help out the poor Christians who were in desperate straits in Jerusalem. The double blessing he speaks about is the twofold blessing of giving, both for his journey and also for the poor Jewish Christians. The blessing was giving. But then everything changed. The Corinthians had reacted badly to the letter of 1 Corinthians. They, they were offended by the letter. And false teachers were just whipping up an anti-Paul sentiment in the city and in the church. And so because of a crisis, Paul then constructed plan B. He wouldn't go to Macedonia now. He would go immediately to Corinth. This, this was an emergency. And then that visit turned out so very badly Accusations were hurled about, and Paul left that place deeply hurt by that experience. And then it seems that Paul never went to Macedonia at all. He went back to Ephesus. He wrote a second letter. That's the one we don't have. It's the lost letter, and it was that painful letter that he calls it, but it was extremely effective. And seeing things were turning out well, Paul then revised his plans one more time. He would now go to Macedonia and then to Corinth as he had planned at the first. Ah, you know, his plans were, were constantly in flux. They were constantly changing. And that's all that some of the Corinthians had heard. They had then said, you know, you can't count on Paul. No sooner does he announce plans and suddenly they change again. His plans mean nothing. And with that came the assumption of motives. And with that, it seems like Paul was on the verge of another fight with the Corinthian Christians. Huh, the damage of assuming we understand the inner motives of the other person. The past number of years back to the Bible Canada has been blessed to offer a unique Israel experience, a journey to the Holy Land under the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld discovering first-hand locations across Israel so prominent in the Bible. On every occasion, those in attendance have agreed it was a spiritual experience of a lifetime. Now's the time to plan ahead. In April of 2021, Back to the Bible Canada is offering our next Israel experience, and we want you to attend. Join an intimate group of brothers and sisters journeying across Israel under the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld and experience events and activities that will include Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, very special musical guests, and hosted by the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Plan to attend. Take advantage of having plenty of notice and register today. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The Corinthian church had started a rumor. Paul is untrustworthy. And like all good rumors, it was based on some facts. Paul had made some plans and then he didn't follow through with them. You know, Paul then characterizes the, the Corinthian response to his changing plans. He says, best of my understanding, you think 
that I can say yes, yes at one moment and then no, no at the next moment. You know, if that's what you think, you need to answer another question. Do you think that I make my plans according to a worldly manner or quite literally, do you think that I make my plans according to the flesh? That is, whatever my flesh feels at a given moment drives my decision-making process. You need to answer that question, he says. In your dealings with me, was that your impression? Now, having set up the problem, Paul then has them remember how it is that he preached the gospel to them in the first place. How did I appear to you when I was ministering among you? That's his question. So we read 2 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 22. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Salvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it was always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ that has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You know, when Paul says, when we preach Jesus as Messiah and Son of God, did you notice that we never waffled on the things of major importance? You know, we never said, yeah, Jesus is Lord and is the only answer to the forgiveness of sins. He's the only way to the Father and he's our only hope. And then on the other hand, when the pagans saw how offensive that message was, and when it cut into the merchant's business like it did in Ephesus and a riot ensued, did you notice, says Paul, we never changed our tune. We kept saying yes. How many of you know that there are Bible teachers at every age? who say both yes and no at the same time. Jesus alone is Lord, they say, and then in the next breath, they seem to indicate that there are other ways in which we might approach God. You know, I recently heard of a church here in Canada participated in smudging. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's a religious ritual in which smoke from a burning sage is fanned over a person in order to cleanse their spirit. Now, this church said it was their way of showing respect for other religious traditions. Well, now, is the book of Hebrews right or not? That is, is it right that we only gain access before the throne of God and cleanse our souls? That is, the only way to do that is through the shed blood of Jesus on his cross. Is that true or not? Is the answer yes or is the answer no? Or do you folks sometimes say yes and then no, depending on the winds of our culture? And that's what Paul is asking the Corinthians. When we and I myself were with you, he says, did it seem to you that I waffled on matters of great importance? See, that's what he's asking in verse 17. Was I fickle? Was I being led by my flesh? Now let's go to verse 20. For all the promises of God, he says, find their yes in him. That's why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. It's a very important verse. It encapsulates what Paul taught. You can go through the First Testament, he says, and mine every single promise that God has made and then find their fulfillment in Christ and then apply those promises to your own life. That would include even the promises of covenant in which God made a covenant with his ancient people Israel so that they would be eternally his people. Now that Christ has come, the Gentiles are also a part of that promise. The law and the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus. The curse of the law has been broken in Christ. And and here's the point. God doesn't make eternal promises and then, when the situation changes, simply revoke them. 
When God makes an eternal promise, it is an eternal promise. God binds himself to do his word. He never says yes at one moment and then says no in the next. The Old Testament promises, not one of them, is canceled out. And New Testament believers can mind the Old Testament promises and interpret them in the light of Jesus and apply every one of them to themselves. God is never a God of yes and then of no. And still not done, Paul adds another thought. If that's what God has done in the Old Testament, think now about the new promises he has given to us in Christ. And there Paul speaks about our being anointed or being chosen into the family of God or having been given the seal of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the future promises of God. God is always a God of yes, says Paul. He never cancels out a promise. Now then, having said that, Paul reminds the Corinthians that this was the kind of gospel that he'd been preaching while while he was there. They all heard that. And in truth, the entire Corinthian congregation had been fed on that gospel. And also, once one believes and preaches that kind of a gospel, well, it has a huge impact on everything else, including the promises that Paul made that he would visit the Corinthians. He never took those promises lightly. It's not the kind of man he was. He didn't serve a God like that. And if that's so, perhaps it was time to think about the change in Paul's plans from an entirely different perspective. You know, maybe all the rumors had been wrong. You know, perhaps they hadn't understood Paul's motives in his change of plans after all. Perhaps Paul wasn't fickle, always changing his plans according to his latest whim or the feelings that he might have had as to how his itinerary should work its way through. See, there's a pattern that used to mark the people of God. Whenever they announced any plans regarding the future, even if it was just a small thing like, you know, I'll see you at five o'clock for coffee tonight, you know, God's people would always add, if the Lord wills. That's because we as human beings aren't God. God can make eternal plans, but we, since we don't have God's perspective, can't make plans that are eternally established. God will determine whether or not our future plans will succeed. And so, now having explained the matter thus far, Paul is now ready to tell the Corinthians why he didn't follow his earlier schedule. And here I'm reading 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23 to chapter 2, verse 4. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I caused you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Did you notice how Paul begins the paragraph? I called God to witness against me, he says. You know, if at this point I'm lying to you, then let God remember this lie. What I'm saying is that important. Paul's taking a sacred oath before God to let the Corinthians know just how seriously he takes this matter. The reason I didn't come is that I couldn't come unless my next visit was filled with joy rather than filled with pain. I didn't come because I didn't want to wield a stick over you again. Don't you hear me? God has given me authority over you, but I want that authority to be a mutually loving relationship. 
And if I would have come too soon, then all that would have been left was more grief. And if I grieved you, who is there to encourage me when I go through another deeply difficult experience? I need you. I need your encouragement. I need your love and your support and the mutual sharing of a common mission. I didn't come so that this partnership that we have would not have been damaged by another painful witness. I didn't come because I loved you. I need to give you time to work matters out. See, funny thing about judging motives, most of the time when people do it, they get the motive wrong. We often assume the worst in people, and then when we get the opportunity to truly understand the motives of someone else, that is, why they truly acted the way they did, well, we're often ashamed by the motives that we had assumed. It's a bad trait in human behavior to assume the best in ourselves and the worst in others. How many times have we damaged relationships because of this? But there's another lesson here. Paul is laying out a way forward. He is showing us how those of us who have been slandered by others might find a way forward. You see, it's so very easy to, when we're slandered, to simply slander back or or to walk away with a wounded spirit. Wherever it's possible, Paul is saying, wherever it's possible, don't break the relationship. Take the time, expend the effort, help the other person to see your true intent. In this way, bad actions can result in good outcomes. John, I'm amazed that I fall into this trap often, and I'm sure others do, but sometimes we try to place uh, our our understanding of someone else's motivation on them, and and often it's very ill-conceived, isn't it? Boy, you know, not only you, me, I think every one of us, I mean, that's just one of the marks of our own fallenness. Jesus told us not to judge someone's motives, so when we say, I know that guy's an egomaniac, like that, for instance. Um, When we say that, we're assuming that we can get inside the person himself and understand that which only God himself can understand. So uh, this is where all of our sins begin, and this is so much division among uh, godly people and Christian people who, you know, begin to suspect the other of something very nefarious That way, if we saw it in our own selves, we'd probably excuse it, but we don't in someone else. So, you know, there is every reason in the world just to simply repent of this attitude and just say it's wrong. Thanks so much, John. Join us again tomorrow as we continue in our series in 2 Corinthians, Power in Weakness, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. One way we want to walk with you in your Bible study is to provide helpful tools and resources. This month, as our free gift, we'd like to send you a unique Back to the Bible Canada Bible Note Caddy. Some might think this is a bit old school, but this small journal comes with aids to help you take important notes, highlight important verses or sections of study, and it comes with a limited Back to the Bible Canada pen. These are limited in number, but if this is a tool you'll find helpful, request your free Bible Note Caddy today. And just a reminder, we're praying for you. And we're also blessed to know ministry friends from across the country are also praying for this ministry. What an encouragement. So call us today to request your free Bible Note Caddy or send in your gift to support the Bible teaching ministries of Back to the Bible Canada at 1-800-663-2425 or visit 
backtothebible.ca.